Welcome to this historical group lecture. Tonight's lecturer needs virtually no introduction. His name is one of those inextricably linked to the Harrier. John Farley has been involved with Vistol since 1964. His career started as an apprentice engineer with the Royal Aircraft Establishment, after which he joined the RAF, flew hunters in Germany and instructed at Cranwell. He graduated from the Empire Test Pilot School in 1963 and did a tour with the RAE's aerodynamics research flight at Bedford. And during that tour, John was the project pilot on the P-1127. He then moved from Bedford to Dunsfold, and the rest, as they say, is history. John, we're very pleased to see you here this evening, and we look forward to your lecture on the V-Stoll Wheel of Misfortune. Thank you, Peter. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. When I was asked to speak to the historical group of the Royal Aeronautical Society, I thought I'd have an audience of fairly elderly people, but you all look so young, I'm really very impressed. Um, I have to say that um, this, this is meant to be a very quick summary of the history of Vistol aircraft other than conventional helicopters. Now, I'm not expecting you to be able to see that diagram. Uh, not at all. But it is the basis of what I'm going to be talking about, and I'll put up sections of the diagram in due course. But before I go any further, is Michael Hirschberg in the room? If so, would he put his hand up, please? No, he's not. Well, um, a big thank you to Michael for letting, him, letting me use his wheel. Now, Michael has done the most recent update of this diagram, which lists, round the outside, 45 different aeroplanes that were flown, flown to some extent or another, in an attempt to produce a decent Vistol aeroplane for service use. 45. Now, out of those 45, there's only one currently in service with the anywhere in the world. There's another one that's just retired, and there are two more in the wings. So out of those four, we're talking a 41 that arguably didn't really sort of make it. Now, this is not my subject. I am not used to talking about failure. I'm used to talking about success. But nevertheless... Let us see how we get on. If we look at to the center of that wheel, you'll see that right in the center there are one, two, three, four areas. And round the outside there are another 15. Those 15 round the outside represent engineering solutions that some very intelligent, hard-working people tried in order to get to this Vistol dream. Fifteen different engineering ways of doing vertical takeoff and landing as well as conventional flight. Of those fifteen, there were four closer to the center in terms of what sort of propulsion system they had. This listing of them then is going to be not by calendar date but by engineering solution. 
So let us start by dealing with that main sector, where, as it says, is the same propulsion system for hover and forward flight, and in particular, the first subset of that lot, tilt shaft or tilt rotor. This aeroplane, um, the Transcendental 1G, goes back to 1954. As you can see, it's got a couple of propellers or rotors on the wingtips, and they would tilt. They built two of these. Uh, they lost the first in an accident, and by 1957, the United States Air Force had decided that the next aircraft I'm going to put up was the way ahead. Now, these aeroplanes round the edge of this wheel, and this is the first one, I am going to rush through them very quickly. I, there's far too many for you to hoist in any sensible level of detail about any of them, so I'm not going to try it. I just want to use them all briefly to leave you with a very definite feeling of how much work has been done around the world by a lot of people. Okay, this second aeroplane was what followed from that first one, the Balax V3. And uh, the United States Air Force um, was sponsoring this. The first crashed after a few months before it had actually converted into horizontal flight. They had no trouble flying it as a helicopter. And the second managed to go to conventional flight, but was damaged in a wind tunnel test uh, during um, some later trials. The next subset that we have is tilt prop. This was the first of those, Curtis Wright X100. This is a 1959 aeroplane. And uh, its first and only transition to the vertical happened in April 1960. They learned enough from that, though, to do that one, which is the Curtis Wright X-19. And we're now looking at 1963, which, to put it in sort of uh, context, was three years after Hawkers were flying the P-1127 at Dunsville. This aeroplane on the screen has got what they call prop rotors, sort of very large propellers as opposed to conventional helicopter rotors. When the program was cancelled four months after they flew it, the first aircraft had made 50 flights, but only four hours. The second aircraft which they built was never flown. So they obviously learned something, and it wasn't entirely what they wanted, presumably. Now we're going to move around to the next subset, tilt duct. Well then, how about that? Now, one of these things um, looks like this when it's flying. This is the DOAC 16. And you may be able to see at the bottom of the screen a number, and that's the number as we go around the, uh, the outside of the wheel. Staying, excuse me, staying with that sort of system, the tilt duct, the Balex 22A was clearly a much more grown-up machine. Um, they, they flew this in 1966, so that was six years after that one you've just seen the video of. And it flew actually until 1980 and did over 200 hours flying. But somehow or other, it doesn't look right, does it? The French uh, were getting in the act with something called the Nord Cadet, 1968. Um, would you believe it only flew, perhaps you would, uh, it only flew tethered, 
Um, the first aircraft was used for static tests, and the second made a tethered hover in July 68. After doing that, they decided not to go any further. I don't have any details, I'm afraid. Right, tilt wing is the next subset. This is the first tilt wing aeroplane, and we're looking at 1957, Vertol 76. It's obviously there with the wing down, virtually in the horizontal and conventional flight position. A much more grown-up version of it was the Hiller X-18. Now, this was aimed at producing a sort of VSTOL transport aeroplane for the United States services. They flew it conventionally. They did partial conversions. In other words, they partially went from conventional flight to the hover, but they never actually got as far as the hover uh, before it was cancelled. This, actually, is one of my favourite aeroplanes. This is number 10, the XC-142, 1964. And when this thing first flew, I was already then at Bedford and about to start on the P-1127. They built five of these aeroplanes. We knew a bit about them, uh, we, the Aeroflight Boffins at Bedford, because, of course, it was a VSTOL programme and Bedford was interested in VSTOL. As I said, they flew, they flew five of them. They were flown in various countries by various evaluation teams. They had a series of mechanical failures, but they were far from a complete disaster. During the program, I think they accrued something like 420 hours. They flew it from a ship. From an engineering point of view, I think we would all agree that having a tilt wing where all the engines go around together and so on, is obviously an easier thing to organise than having a tilt rotor where you keep the wing flat and you have to twist all the engines round. But of course there are difficulties with perching your wing up like that uh, in, in transition. Okay, you've got a lot of drag, which is uh, perhaps not a bad thing, but you're going to have terrible gust response. And uh, the only good thing I think you can say about the aerodynamics once it's got into the hover is that the lifting system, the propellers, do not blow down on top of the wing and so reduce your hover weight. Probably the most successful tilt-wing aeroplane, if success is measured by how long it flew, how many programs and so on it... it uh, it was aimed at, and how many test pilots tried it, was the Canadair CL-84. This aeroplane was unashamedly a research aircraft. It was only a quarter the size of that one. Um, but it did fly for some considerable number of years. In fact, uh, 65 through to, I think, the late 70s. Now, tilt rotor. I saw this Bell X-15 flying for the first time at Paris in the early 80s. This is where you're going to rotate just the engine nacelles and leave the wing alone. The things holding it up are prop rotors as opposed to ordinary rotors. I mean, a prop rotor is just halfway between a, a propeller and a rotor, isn't it? It seemed to fly extremely well at Paris when, when we watched it. And by that one means you know, flew steadily, didn't wobble about, seemed to cope with gusts and weather and wind, did a nice, calm demonstration. And sure enough, a few years later, it led to this aeroplane, 
the V-22 Osprey. Hands up anybody who saw this flying at Farnborough. Uh, good, jolly good, fine. So this aeroplane is within weeks, I suspect, of a full-blown production order. It has carried out a large number of service trials. There are a lot of them in existence now. And um, they've had a lot of accidents, and it has taken 17 years from the first flight of this aeroplane, the V-22, to get it ready for service. 17 years. Interestingly, some of those accidents were what I call non-type-related accidents. I mean, if you put the autostabs in any aeroplane and wire them up the wrong way and then try and take off, you will crash. That's what happened to this. Those are aviation-type accidents. They are not type-related accidents. They have had a type-related accident, a very serious one, where they killed a lot of Marines, which was asymmetric vortex ring. Um, I think they have uh, understood enough about the process of that now to make sure that it doesn't happen with their service release. And there have also been several accidents during this 17 years on the quality control basis, where pipes have rubbed and uh, hydraulic fluid's been lost and control has been lost, etc. Those sort of aeronautical engineering things. Not simple mistakes like wiring it up the wrong way, but uh, not getting your clearances right, or perhaps not realizing how a vehicle flexes um, and, and how clearances can vary. I'll show you another picture or two of that aeroplane later, because this is one of the four that arguably have been successful. Okay, moving round then, uh, still the same propulsion system for hover and forward flight. We get tilt jet. The Bell Model 65, that goes back to 1964, and you can see how the jets tilted and what they tried to do with them. I think this little bit of video shows, for 1954, a remarkable degree of controllability. It looks steady. It doesn't look as if the guy's struggling. Um, I've seen far worse uh, videos coming out of Dunsfold uh, ten years later. Um, far worse. The aeroplane was too underpowered to go all the way through a transition. The next thing is deflected slipstream. Now, I think these people were actually having a joke. Um, uh, the Robertson Aircraft Corporation in 1956 came up with this design. It only ever flew tethered. The idea, of course, is that you make the wing work at negligible speed by blowing wind past it from the propellers. How about that one, then? I mean, is that obviously going to be successful? Um, I'm told it would only hover with a reasonable headwind. Um, this pres presumably this meant that they couldn't generate enough lift without flying forwards through the air at some modest speed. They built two. Uh, the chap ejected from the first one. Here is another attempt at doing this sort of uh, concept of deflected slipstream. Now we come to a category called vectored thrust. The first of these was the Bell X-14. This aeroplane was powered by a couple of United Kingdom engines, obviously an American aeroplane, 
They were vipers, Armstrong Sidley vipers. And indeed, Hugh Merriweather and Bill Bedford, the two pilots who at Dunsfold did the early P-1127 flying in 1960 time, they both went over to America and flew this aeroplane prior to having a crack at the P-1127. P-1127 is also in that vectored thrust category, and, uh, and that aeroplane, of course, was a 1960 aeroplane. I remember this particular sortie. It was the first one where Hugh had taken off from the grid, moved forward, and then realized that he was going over some wet ground because the rain had just stopped. He described the view at that point as lavatorial. <laughs> I think that's Alan Gettings in the foreground. Um, <coughs> excuse me, taking a few note notes, no doubt. The Russians were up to the same thing. And uh, they did the Yak-36 freehand vectored thrust, 1963. The next vectored thrust aeroplane going round that wheel is the Harrier. We don't need to say any more about that because it has, um, it has a reasonable history that is well understood. This is um, the latest version, a 9A, which patently can carry a bit more than a fag packet across a football field which is the description that the competitors provided of the P-1127, perhaps with some justification, but not quite. Now, another vector thrust aeroplane. This was the competitor for the Joint Strike Fighter competition, Boeing's X-32. And this flew in 2001. This was just another Harrier, in terms of the way it was going to fly and the way it did fly. It had a couple of Harrier-like nozzles here, which could be lowered like a Harrier, and pure jet thrust was used in order to do a vertical takeoff, a hover, or indeed a short takeoff. The engine, uh, in fact, let me just show you, I mean, that's what it looked like. Um, I don't know how much you are aware of the competition that led to the eventual selection of the Lockheed aeroplane for the Joint Strike Fighter competition. But there were three teams that, that produced paper aeroplanes for this competition. We're going back about 15 years now. One was led by McDonnell Douglas, one was led by Boeing, and one was led by Lockheed. The McDonnell Douglas aeroplane was eliminated at the paper stage. The Boeing and... Uh, Lockheed aeroplanes were funded through to a prototype. Because this was a competition to provide a vertical takeoff and landing fighter that met certain specific targets, you had to give both teams the same engine, didn't you? Because as any aircraft designer knows, the better the engine, the easier it is to make the aeroplane. So this and the eventual winner both used the same engine. We're talking of a Pratt & Whitney 119, um, an engine out of the F-22. They were allowed, they, the teams, were allowed to modify the engine as they saw fit. But of course, the extent of the modifications would come beyond their slop chip. Boeing put these two nozzles, this is after the combustion chamber, folks, so the jet engine has happened in front of here, and we're just looking at jet pipe now, so this is hot air. Uh, they put two nozzles on there that rotated, just like a Harrier. 
To get the air to come out of here, instead of where it wanted it to come out of here, of course, you had to shut the back end up with a great big door, you know, and out would come the air here. It had all the accoutrements of a hovering aeroplane, like reaction controls and so on. But their big problem was stopping this hot gas when it hit the ground and it radially splashes in all directions, going up into the intake. And they had here some cold air from the fan. Well, cold is a relative term, but it had not had fuel burned in it, uh, which was exhausting here. And they hoped would form a jet screen, which would prevent the hot gases going forward uh, and a surge when doing a vertical landing. They weren't entirely successful. Okay, that's vector thrust. Now, uh, what, uh, another way of using the same propulsion system for hover and forward flight is to do a tail sitter. There were several of these. The first was the XV-1, a Lockheed aeroplane, 1954. Clearly a very powerful Allison-type turbojet at the top there. Turboprop, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Uh, you see, well, I've given up flying aeroplanes. I can't even describe the motors properly. Um, all right, that was the Lockheed XV-1. They, they never actually got that through a transition. They did this one, which is the Convair, and they did this one, which is the Ryan X-13. Now this, unlike the other two, the Ryan has got a jet engine. The other two, of course, had prop jets. Slowly rotate the aeroplane, and you will accelerate. That's the equivalent of rotating the nozzles in a Harrier. A flashing by uh, on the wings, a nice period of calm and relief before doing this, of all things. Now, the best bit of this video is almost at the very end. And when I say, hey, watch it, you look in the top left-hand corner of the frame for a bloke's hand that comes out and gives a thumbs up. That's right, he's trying to hook it onto that tower. Watch it. <laughs> I believe they did that once, and I believe the chap said there was no point in doing it again. <laughs> but quite seriously, folks, VSTOL, if it means anything, it means operating site flexibility, doesn't it? The ability to fly from somewhere other than a traditional great big airfield. Well, if you need a lot of kit, um, and this is not, not a knocking com comment, um, if you need a lot of kit in order to do your vertical bit, then clearly it's slightly uh, self-defeating. The French, meanwhile, had a, uh, had a, a flying engine called a coleoptere with considerable wing lift produced by the duct. This is 1959. They never got it through a transition. Um, the chap was trying to come back. He had a lot of oscillatory problems. Um, the airplane started to come down quickly. He couldn't stop it. He ejected about 150 feet, but was quite badly hurt. The airplane went back up a bit, went to about 30 degrees, and then crashed. Okay, well, that is the end of that first main sector, where the same propulsion system is used for hover and forward flight. Now we're going to go on round and look at what it says is separate power plants for the hover. Or, as we got round the edge in the, in the jargon, lift plus cruise. Of these, the first was the short SC-1. 
This was a research aircraft. It was never intended to go into service. And there were one or two other research aircraft around that wheel. So it is not as simple as saying that 41 of them were failures, um, because it isn't a failure if you carry out research and learn a lot, e even if it was never intended to be for service use. This had four lifting engines, and we're talking 1964. It was an aeroplane that was specified by the Royal Aircraft Establishment at Farnborough and was the next logical stage beyond the flying bedstead, which was purely a hovering engine rig. They wanted to add aerodynamics to the thing and they wanted to see if they could fly through the transition and so on. This is 1960, 1960, April 1960 this was shot. I think one has to say that that looks a perfectly reasonable process. It was a 250-knot aeroplane, and uh, this aeroplane was at Bedford on the aerodynamics research flight when I joined them after doing the Empire Test Pilot School course in 63. Four lifting engines, air intake on the top, one horizontal propulsion engine. Okay, the next one in this category um, was the Dassault the Dassault Balzac. Now, arguably, this was just a very upmarket or very ambitious short SC-1. Instead of saying, well, all right, we'll give it a fixed undercarriage, we'll only get a 250 knots and all the rest of it, they said, we're going to have a supersonic aeroplane here. Uh, they needed eight engines to hold it up in the hover. Took up a fair bit of uh, space in the fuselage. I watched this fly at the Paris Air Show in 1963, when I was on the ETPS course, we, we did a visit. This is um, number 28, folks, so we're rattling around the wheel quite nicely. The aeroplane had a couple of very nasty accidents, was rebuilt each time, although the pilot was killed. And they went on to do the definitive version. If you want to think of that Balzac as a sort of P1127 orchestral, and this as the Harrier, they hoped, then this, and that is the sort of relationship. This was the proper intended operational aeroplane. Similar in principle to um, the 3V, the, the um, Balzac, I'm sorry, but um, a 1965 aeroplane. So this is five years after Hawkers were doing their thing and one year before the Harrier started flying. This aeroplane had eight RB, Rolls-Royce RB162 lift engines, 5,400 pounds of thrust each. Thrust-to-weight ratio of those engines, 16 to 1. I don't think it's ever been beaten, actually. Um, a remarkable piece of kit. Uh, however, they, um, they had accidents, and, uh, well, history says it never got anywhere, but um, it was a brave attempt. Now we're looking at combined power plant for the hover, combined. Lift plus lift cruise will be the first section. And uh, this is a German aeroplane, obviously, VJ-101. There were two versions, the X1 and the X2. This is the X1. We're talking of a pair of podded turbo jets on the, uh, on the tips of the wing that rotated as well as a horizontal engine. They also did 
and I'm going to be rude here, they also did the X2 version, which was reheated. They tried to hover it, they broke it, they had hot gas re-ingestion. I mean, doesn't anybody realise that aeroplanes stand on rubber tyres? I mean, quite seriously, this sort of... I don't know how engineers can have such a blind spot about practicality. I mean, you are not going to make a practical VSTOL aeroplane if it's going to be surrounded by flame and fire. You're really not. This one crashed on a conventional takeoff after a, a three or four flights where the roll autostab was <laughs> wired up the wrong way around again. Um, I think this was the, the sortie, the one you're looking at the video of, and that's as long as the video goes, because I think it was chopped off there because an oscillation developed and the aeroplane crashed. But was it a sensible way of, of going about jump jettery? I really, I, I honestly don't think so. Okay, the DO-31. I mean, they were having a laugh here, weren't they? Ten engines. Four on each wingtip. What are you going to do when a couple of those stop? Well, you might say, well, I'll stop two on the other side, but that's only going to accelerate the inevitable, isn't it? And inboard of that, of course, we've got a... Not of course, but we've got a couple of Harrier Pegasus-type engines. This was an attempt at doing a vertical landing transport aeroplane. It was flown by Drury Wood, an American test pilot, and if you approach him any time before 11 o'clock at the bar, he's still gabbling. Um, right, the, the next aeroplane is a little bit out of sequence with time-wise, because we are going round this in a technical sense. This is the Hummingbird 2, and we should come to the Hummingbird 1 later. The Hummingbird 2 was had got three lifting engines in the fuselage and a propulsion one. They had a considerable number of difficulties with it. Um, we're talking 1969. Four lift engines and two propulsion jet engines they had. Now this is the German VAC 191. This was going on at a similar sort of time to that 101 program, the one that I said nasty things about all the fire underneath it. This is what it looked like inside. So we're talking of a couple of lift engines holding up the front and the back, assisted in the middle by a Harrier or Pegasus type engine. I say type because it was scaled down. It was only 11,000 pounds of thrust compared to the Pegasus of the day at about 15. Not much space left in the fuselage for a sort of military bit of kit, is there? Okay. Um, now, number 34 on the wheel, and we've come now to the second service aeroplane, the Yak-38 Forger, the Russian aeroplane, that was in service for many years with the Russian Navy. We're talking of the front of the aeroplane being held up by two lifting engines here, vertically mounted, the back of the aeroplane being held up by two Harrier-like rotating nozzles either side of the fuselage, for, fed by the conventional flight engine. And incidentally, 
that is a dummy nuclear weapon. I can remember um, Kingston, certain senior people at Kingston, uh, thinking that this really was a load of rubbish compared to the Harrier. Um, in terms of its actual payload radius of action performance, so it, they were both subsonic airplanes. Yes, it was inferior to the Harrier because they had trouble trying to do short takeoffs with it, so they had to keep inside a vertical takeoff weight. But I believe, and it's purely a personal comment, and I, I know one or two, I have one or two Russian friends who are in the test flying business in Russia. I believe it was a very sensible attempt by the Russians at that time to develop a lift or VSTOL concept that could be put into a supersonic aeroplane. Now, you cannot put the Harrier concept into a supersonic aeroplane. You cannot have the efflux coming out either side of the fuselage and so on at the sort of speeds that are necessary to fly supersonically. So you commit yourself with a Harrier benign Harrier engine, however lovely it is for, for VSTOL, uh, you commit yourself to flying subsonically. If you want to fly supersonically, you've got to have fire and Christ knows what, breathing out the back of the aeroplane. Okay. Well, you can do that if you're hot air is right at the back. So I think this was an attempt at providing a lifting system that could be dropped into a MiG-29 category aeroplane. So as far as I'm concerned, there was a very sensible engineering objective with that aeroplane. The supersonic version, and they brought both the subsonic one you've just seen and this one, to Farnborough in 1992, the same bloke, Vladimir Yakimov, flew them both on the same day. This was a genuinely supersonic aeroplane. Look at that thing underneath. Oh. Um, I was standing looking at this the first time I physically saw it at Farnborough, parked alongside the Yak-38. Um, I was standing there looking at it, and somebody came up to me and said, what do you think of that then? And I said, I bet it'd do a bit more damage than the SC-1. Um, he didn't know what I meant, of course, but uh, I was just standing there dumbfounded at the size of that hole, at all the heat-resistant ablative material they'd put on the bottom of the aeroplane, etc., etc., etc. Anyhow, after Vladimir flew both the 38 and this one at Farnborough in one afternoon, I stuck him in a motor car and told the driver to go to Wittering, excuse me, and, uh, and they flew him in a Harrier the next morning. So Vladimir is the only chap in the Guinness Book of Records so far who's flown three different types of, of jump jet in 24 hours, and I wouldn't mind betting that record will never be beaten. Um, okay, now moving on, we come to tip jets. That may look like uh, an ordinary helicopter or autogyro or something. It isn't. It's, uh, the rotor is driven by tip jets. This is a 1954 aeroplane built by McDonnell, XV-1. Uh, not terribly successful. But the classic aeroplane of this type was the ferry Rotodyne. Anybody here in the room see it fly at Farnborough? Or, or anywhere else. Or, oh, well, there you go. 
Uh, I'm, I'm surprised, actually, you put your hands up because I would have thought you'd been too deaf to hear what I just said. <laughs> I mean, th that seriously was the problem, wasn't it? My understanding of this aeroplane, which was a brilliant notion, we want to carry passengers from Hyde Park Corner, which is only just over there, from Hyde Park Corner to the Champs-Élysées, just like that. We don't want to have to go out to an airfield, so we're going to have city centre. Fine. So we need a rotor to take off vertically, all right, okay. Uh, now, we want, we want to carry a reasonable number, 60, 70 people, all right, well, need a slightly bigger fuselage, okay. Um, now then, uh, oh, we don't want to go at helicopter speed, we like to go faster. All right, well, let's put a couple of propellers on the front, and yes, we'll unload the big rotor, uh, so we'll have a stub wing. So we have got a compound helicopter here. Brilliant notion. Um, and the ferry people went to the uh, gearbox people and said, OK, this is the space we've got for a gearbox to drive the rotor. This is the weight allowance we can give you for the gearbox to drive the rotor. And uh, off you go. This is the horsepower we need. They came back a couple of weeks later and said, we can't do that. What, what do you mean you can't do that? Well, we can't make a gearbox that will transmit that much power inside that weight limit, inside that volume. Okay, all right, why not? Because we haven't got the materials and we haven't got the understanding to do it. Okay, all right, well, we'll, we'll drive the rotor with tip jets. So here we were with arguably one of the noisiest means of propulsion nailed to the end of each rotor and we were going to use it at Hyde Park Corner. No, I don't think so. So that, that was, that was the, the fatal flaw of the concept. It was just terribly noisy. OK, we've now come to the last group of augmented power plants in the hover. Here we're looking at a thing called an ejector. Now, there was, a, there was a theoretical notion that if you blew air from a jet engine through some sort of load of pipes and things, you could magnify the amount of thrust. I remember John Fossard thinking they were a bit optimistic and you didn't get anything for nothing in this business, and he was right. So the thing was, never develop the augmentation. This is the Hummingbird 1. This is the one that I said was out of sequence chronologically. They took this uh, system out and they put lifting engines in, in that Hummingbird 2. This was another ejector aeroplane, the Rockwell International. Um, that one failed as well because they didn't achieve the, uh, the magnification of thrust that, that the system relied on. I think they got 4% where the theory said they could get 16. Okay, uh, one other obvious way is to use fans. Um, perhaps not necessarily like that, but I mean there are other ways. And, uh, and there's another way couple of reasonable-looking aeroplanes with fans in the wing. Can you see them there? Okay. Um, regardless of whether or not it could actually get off the ground, and it could, um, they, they had a series of problems in, in sealing the fans. They, they had a series of crashes. And to cut a long story short, although the program started in 1964, by 68, it was all over. Now we come to the Lockheed Martin X-35B. This was the winner of the Joint Strike Fighter competition 
where the Boeing aeroplane with the two Harrier nozzles under the centre of gravity was the other competitor. We're holding the back end up with, um, with this nozzle and we're holding the front end up with a fan. Now it's a shaft-driven fan, folks. Um, that is not an engine, that is effectively a huge vent axia and it's shaft-driven because you only need it in the circuit then, of course, you've got to have a clutch and a gearbox to, to disengage it. You rotate this thing at the back and, uh, and you get a vertical post at the back and you need some reaction controls to control it in roll. If you wonder how the nozzle works, and by the way, Lockheed went to Yak to get the 141 nozzle details from them. It's not that easy to keep something like that round at the temperatures and pressures at which a jet pipe runs on a supersonic donk. I'm sorry, this is a Rolls-Royce slide and I don't think you will be able to see the numbers, but it just shows where the where this kit is mounted in the aeroplane. The fan is just behind the cockpit. We've got a three-bearing swivel nozzle at the back end and we've got our roll post. But some of these numbers are amazing. You can't see that. It says 29,000 shaft horsepower. That's what it says. 29,000. That's 30 Formula One motor cars going through a little tiny clutch and a gearbox and the whole lot must weigh nothing. If that's, if that's not a testament to modern materials and engineering, I don't know what is. The advances have been quite tremendous. This fan produces 20,000 pounds of thrust. This thing, the nozzle, when it is driving the fan at that level, is still producing some 18,000 pounds at the back end. A bit more out the front than the back. Very important, that. Um, remarkable numbers. This is a 40,000 pound hovering aeroplane. This is a huge aeroplane. This is twice the weight of a Harrier. If you watch closely, you'll see the rear nozzle twitching sideways when the thing comes into the land. It is the, the rudder on the aeroplane. So far as pitch control is concerned, you're varying the thrust between the fan and the nozzle at the back end. Roll control you saw from those posts that were sticking out either side. The whole thing is computer controlled and the pilot is merely, watch, watch that rear nozzle now, watch it. That's the motion that it uses when it's um, acting as a rudder. Yes, the whole thing is, uh, is a fly-by-wire piece of kit and the pilot using a flight control system developed by Boscombe Down or Bedford and Boscombe Down in the Vark aeroplane over 29 years in the United Kingdom. Uh, that aeroplane uh, requires no specialist training to fly. Finally, we have a small number of aeroplanes where they have used a rotor um, to augment the thing in the hover. The Russians had this, this aeroplane called the Ka-32 uh, correction, 22, sorry. Uh, the Piasecki uh, did a, an aeroplane. It's, it's another go, effectively, at, a, combined heli at uh, a compound helicopter, excuse me, with small wings and, and things to blow you along at the back and so on. And finally, the Cheyenne. Okay, well, we've rushed round that thing because um, I, I wanted to leave time for a few questions. So let me just summarise that the Yak-38... Forger, which was in service for many years with the, with the Russian Navy, was clearly 
within limits a successful service VSTOL aeroplane. The Harrier certainly has been. The next one to come along is the V-22 Osprey. And I am not sure whether we are weeks away from a full production contract or whether it's a month or two yet, but it is literally that close. We are not talking of any technical difficulties remaining in this program now, and uh, it is just a case of political will, and because the Marine Corps are behind it, I very much doubt that the thing will get stopped. It has had to overcome so many problems in 17 years that to think that it's not going to go into full production very shortly is, uh, is unthinkable. And then, of course, we have the Lockheed Martin X-35, which was the system's demonstrator for the Joint Strike Fighter aeroplane. The Joint Strike Fighter has got a full military capability. This had zero military capability. This only flew for six weeks, and it's now in a museum. And in that six weeks, such a complicated and revolutionary concept was able to demonstrate all the requirements to win a competition in six weeks. Isn't that a testament to modern engineering? Okay, do you have any questions? Thank you very much, John. Uh, Tony Purton was first, I think. Uh, Tony Purton, I was in the MOD as a procurement uh, officer. Taking you back to 1965, you said you couldn't have a supersonic thing like the Harrier. What about the P-1154? I'm very glad that we didn't make the P-1154. Is that, is that your point? That was the point. That yeah, was sure. what we were doing. I mean, we never developed the Harrier. We wanted the P-1154. Mm. No, I know, I know the Royal Air Force wanted the P-1154. They would not have enjoyed it. It wouldn't have worked. And we'd never have sold it to the Americans. That's the starters. It was another of these hot air fire-breathing devices. And that is no good. You could only have operated it vertically from the sort of platform, water-cooled and so on, that you might use to take yourself to the moon, or for starters, you know. Um, it, the, you've got to have operating site flexibility or you don't have the benefits of VSTOL, in my view. And to have fire coming out those front nozzles, I personally think it was wonderful that it was cancelled. I mean, Ralph Hooper, very good friend of mine, and, uh, and one or two other guys from Kingston here may think that it should never have been cancelled, but I believe it was right to cancel that. I believe it was right to cancel the Rototyne. I believe it was right to cancel the AW681, which was a sort of DO31. And I believe it was right to cancel the TSR2. And those four things were cancelled by an incoming government within a few months of each other. And I, th I personally believe each programme was fatally flawed in different ways. Thank you very much for a, a very interesting lecture. Uh, nothing to do with VSTOL, but I, I, what I've read about you, that you've also flown the MiG-29 vectored thrust, which put on a fantastic performance at Farnborough. Could you give us a minute on that? Well, it, I'm sorry, you were misinformed. I've flown the MiG-29, but I haven't flown the one with vectored thrust. Oh, you haven't um, it obviously is a, a remarkable aeroplane. Um, the, thing, the thing about the MiG-29 and the SU-27 family of aeroplanes and the manoeuvres they do uh, where you are going in some cases to 120 degrees angle of attack uh, and routinely to 90. 
is, is not so much from an engineering point of view, at least as far as I'm concerned, it's not so much from the point of view of what use is it, it's how on earth do they keep the engines going. That is, no, seriously, that is the, that is the engineering achievement. People ooh and ah at the manoeuvres, I ooh and ah at the thought of the engines that can swallow that level of intake distortion. When I, when I talked to the chief designer of the MiG-29 before I flew it in 1990, I said, how do you keep the engines going? He said, well, first, and this is through an interpreter, of course, first you need a good engine, and by that I thought he probably meant one that could swallow uh, very good, uh, well, not very good, but erratic airflow and turbulent airflow, one with a good surge margin. And two, he said, you need a clever intake. He said, and if you look down our intakes, they are not just simple pipes, and they were not. I mean, when you take off in a MiG-29, the intakes are shut at the front. And they don't close, they don't open, rather, until you've got to something like a 215 knots or something. And it breathes through some holes in the top. Now, this is to say stones and rubbish going in, very practical aeroplane. I was a bit worried before I flew it, I said, what happens if one of the doors stays shut? Um, how fast have you flown with the door shut? And he said, 480 knots. And I thought, huh, not much of a problem there then. So, um, but no, the MiG-29 and the SU-27, the wings were designed by the same two guys. Um, brilliant aerodynamics in terms of stability and control at high alphas. That's what best fighter wing I've ever flown in terms of the potential for not letting you down and causing the aircraft to depart in some way or other. If you then throw in fly-by-wire, as they have now got in the MiG, it was manual when I flew it, and if you then throw in thrust vectoring, well, you've got the lot then, haven't you? But they start from good aerodynamics, and good engines and good intakes, and they built on that. Thank you for your... Uh... Uh, wonderful talk. Can you just tell us a bit about the um, the process of uh, going from a P1127 to the Kestrel and to the Harrier and why those steps were necessary? Yes, certainly. Um, it's, it's, it is a point that there are two things that you've got to do to develop VSTOL. You have to get performance and you have to get handling. Now that may, that may seem self-evident and obvious. But in the early days, P1127 days, we didn't have enough thrust from the engines to do it easily. And if you can't do it easily, you know, you're, you're stuck within terrible constraints. When I started on the aeroplane, the engine had a one-hour life. That's one hour if you were using it with the nozzles deflected, 25 hours with the nozzles aft. Now, we knew how to fly ordinary jet aeroplanes with, you know, the jets pointing out the back, so nobody wanted to do that. They wanted to do it all nozzles down. And I got this wonderful job of comparing this P1127 prototype with the short SC1 when I went to, first went to Bedford. And one hour life, that doesn't half concentrate the mind on what you do in, in a particular flight. The, the overhaul cost £60,000 sterling in 1964. So when you got the engine back for another hour, that was a thousand pounds a minute direct engine depreciation costs without any other cost of operating the aeroplane. 
So you couldn't afford to have the aeroplane bigger than so much because if it's bigger, it weighs more. You couldn't afford to make it stronger than so much because if it's stronger, it's heavier. We didn't have the engine to do a better aeroplane in 1960. Now, the other aspect, leave, treating that as performance, the other aspect, of course, is, is control. And there was a lot that had to be learned about the controllability of these things in the hover. Um, it's easy enough for the pilots to say, give me more aileron, give me more elevator, give me more rudder. By that you mean bigger pipes blowing air out. But I'm sorry, you can't have more because every bit of air that we take off this struggling engine, you know, reduces the amount of lift that we're going to get out the engine. So we were gradually going on the P1127 through to the Kestrel and then through to the first Harrier, we were gradually getting the engine bigger and gradually being able to afford decent controls. Does that, does that make any sort of sense? You, you couldn't just sort of grow one bit by itself. And it wasn't until 1966 that we had a big enough engine um, to do the job relatively easily. Then you've got some fuel to spare when you're hovering, and you've got some bleed air to spare for reaction controls and so on. That was why the process had to go through. If we had had today's engine, 24,500 pounds, flat rated, you can use it in an ambient temperature of 5,0 degrees C, ISA plus 35, without any loss of thrust. Huh? If we'd had that engine in 1960, we'd have done some real damage with it. Just like if we'd had that engine in the First World War, I would have loved to have gone up and down the trenches. I mean, it would, you know, you, I'm sorry, it just all takes time. Yeah. There was no, no other reason than that. Craig Penrose from BAE Systems. John, you hinted to it on your um, discussion about the F-35 Joint Strike Fighter. Uh, I'm just interested on your views on the control strategy that's been adopted for hovering that aeroplane. Yes, sure, sure. The control strategy that is in use on the Joint Strike Fighter is that you pull the stick back if you want to go up and you push it forward if you want to go down. It's a concept that's familiar to most people at flying clubs. However, <laughs> however, however, it works regardless of speed. So, you can be stationary on the ground and if you pull a stick back, assuming you've started the engine, if you pull a stick back, the computer says, oh, he wants to go up. So he puts the nozzles down, he opens the throttle, and up you go. If you get to 50 feet, and you're so surprised, because you're not a trained pilot, and you've been told that this is how you can fly it, and they put an ITN news reader in, didn't they, recently, with no flying experience, and he did just this. If you pull a stick back, in the VARC aeroplane, that is, not the JSF, um, if, if you pull a stick back, it goes up. You get to 50 feet, you see the ground going away, and you go, ah, and you let go of the stick. And the computer says, doesn't want to go up, doesn't want to go down, doesn't want to go left, doesn't want to... <laughs> just sits there in a hover. If you're a smart-ass test pilot, you get hold of the stick and you go, stuff. And the computer says, oh dear, oh dear, doesn't this idiot realise we're only 50 feet up, I'm going to creep down from here. If you want to go faster from the hover, then you just move this lever. It isn't a throttle, it's a go-faster lever. You just move that lever, and you are selecting a higher speed. If you leave it in the centre detent, then the aeroplane holds the speed you're at. It might be 300 knots, and you might be flying level. 
If you then pull the stick back and the aeroplane has to go up, then you will climb and it will maintain 300 knots unless you open the throttle further. There's a second further back detent which holds zero ground speed. So the whole concept is one of eliminating the need for specialist pilot training. Harrier pilots and all those experienced in VSTOL hate it, absolutely hate it, because it removes all need for them. And they have spent their careers learning how to use the nozzle lever. It's what makes them better in the bar, it what makes them better in the... and probably makes them better in bed, they think. You know, but it's rubbish, you know? You shouldn't have to use two things with your left hand. Um, I, I, I personally... I, the first time I flew that, that control strategy was 1993 at Bedford in, in the VAR carrier. And it was one of four or five we were looking at then, and I said, that's the only way to go. And, and, but it did take a long time, until 1999, when I last flew the aeroplane with that control strategy. And, and I got out then, and I said to Justin Paynes, who was the, uh, the safety pilot in the front, um, with the mechanical controls, instead, in case the computers had quit, I said, that's fine, mate, don't change a thing, just go over and sell it. And he went and sold it to the um, joint... The, joint program office of the Joint Strike Fighter. And uh, it, it's a brilliant concept. And it was sold against amazing opposition from, from pilots of, of all types, including uh, chief test pilot uh, uh, of BAE. Uh, it, it, it removes all skill. And isn't that what we should have in a combat aeroplane? When, when the combat pilots are over the target getting shot at on your behalf and my behalf, then they deserve to have whatever they want. But once they've turned their back on the target, they should press a button that says coffee bar. And the aeroplane should automatically take them home, day, night, good weather, bad weather, whatever, and land them safely. Um, Justin did that, Justin Paynes did that with the VAR carrier, too invincible, he was some way away and he pressed the button and it sniffed, the aeroplane sniffed the air, decided where it was, talked to Invincible, decided where that was, put the two together and landed in vertically. That's what should happen to our combat pilots, who aren't really pilots, they're, they're really, they're really um, warriors. They're warriors who fight in the air instead of fight on the ground or fight on the water. But we don't want to have to teach them to fly all their lives. We want to teach them how to fight and tactics and stuff. Saves. Sorry, I'm, I'm on a hobby horse, aren't I? I beg your pardon. I really do beg your pardon. Sorry. So I like the strategy. <laughs> Peter Hearn, please. I'm a bit surprised that nobody's mentioned accidents, but never mind. Sorry, carry on, sir. Um, Hi, Don. Um, I w was interested in your, your comments about the 24,000 pound thrust engine and 50 degrees C and so forth. I think I'm right in saying that the gas generator part of that engine is about 50 years old or so. It's, it's the, basically, it's the Orpheus designed way back with a fan stuck on the front. Obviously, a lot of evolution development has gone into it mm -hmm. since then. If you were going to continue with the Harrier development, which a lot of people would have liked to have seen, how would you have seen, let's say, a 2010 Harrier going, what type of, what would you see the power plant doing and what would you see the aeroplane evolving at? Sure. Um, I, I would have liked us to do a Harrier 3, that's Roman 3. Um, Harrier 1 was the first thing that went into service and was the Sea Harrier that went down to the Falklands and so on. Harrier 2 
is the later version, which is now in service with the Royal Air Force and the Royal Navy, as well as many other countries. Uh, and that's got a bigger plastic wing. I would have liked us to do, to do Harrier 3. Harrier 3, to me, would have been fly-by-wire and this flight control system, so you completely de-skill VSTOL. It would have been subsonic. It would have done 9-5 on the deck with its external weapons. And... Uh, and really, it would have been the most reliable aeroplane we had ever built. So you just had to fill it up with fuel, put more weapons on it and fly it. It would have required less servicing, been very reliable, only went at 9.5, uh, but was always available, just like our motor cars are. But that's not sexy, you know. Services want twice the speed of sound or want nine or whatever it is that's current. Um, so uh, that wasn't going to happen, was it? We were going to have the Joint Strike Fighter. Could but I just add a comment to your yes, remark sure. about fly-by-wire? I remember being in the hallowed halls of Kingston one day talking about advanced avionics, and a gentleman came into the room, and I won't mention his name, but I'm sure I remember, and he said, what's that bloody thing you're talking about? Bedford tells me all you need is a map and a stopwatch. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Well, the, these, these were very good people in their day, but the world moves on. Um, if, if you don't mind, so could I have five minutes at the very most to show you three things about accidents? Could I or, or, or not? Are we? Um, this whole story has, has um, not been... Um, it's not happened without some people um, getting in trouble. This is the problem, or was the problem, with using high-authority autostabs in the 1960s. This was a, this SC-1 was a very easy aeroplane to fly because of the autostabs. It was a delight to fly. I mean, go left, go right, go up, go down. It's ever so easy, thanks to the autostabs. But we didn't know how to make them reliable. And that happened to, to J.R. Green at Bedford um, a couple of months before I went there. This is, is, this is what happened at Dunsfold when we had not solved the, if you go sideways at half mid-transition speed, I'm afraid the aeroplane will roll out of control. Um, the rolling moment you decide slip on that early aeroplane was, was too much. Finally, there is the forger. Now, the bit of film I'm going to show you now, courtesy of, um, of Martin Baker, who sent it to me only a couple of days ago, is the sort of thing that you're going to need on the Joint Strike Fighter. Because if you hold an aeroplane up by, um, by a post at the front and a post at the back, as the forger is and as the Joint Strike Fighter is, then you have got to equip it with automatic ejection. Because if one end or the other quits working, the thing will change its pitch attitude very quickly. I talked to Vladimir about these aeroplanes. They've had 30 automatic ejections without a single failure. Now you can just see in a moment, um, he ejects from what's going on in the middle of the fire there and there's his parachute coming down now. And finally, and perhaps most impressively of all, if you try and do a short takeoff and the back end doesn't cooperate, um, <laughs> You, if you're lucky, you finish up back on the flight deck. There's the seat going up, and here he is arriving on the deck. All right? 
I'll rest my case, all right? Automatic ejection, please. Thank you. Any other questions before we... Uh... Peter Davison, a consultant in historical matters. Um, talking to Marine Corps pilots only a matter of a few weeks ago, um, and this was uh, after the first TDY of um, Ospreys to yes. Centro, which was fairly successful. Um, but one of the uh, Huey pilots that was talking was extremely worried about fibre wire. Um, he was saying when he's in the, in the thick of it, as you've described, and he just wants something safe to fly, um, if he's got his guys in the back um, and he's got to overstress the aeroplane to get him out of trouble, fly wire will stop him doing it. And he was extremely concerned, and said a lot of his colleagues were, of taking on an aeroplane that wouldn't let him bend it or warp it to save lives or get home um, because the computer said, you don't do that. Um, how do you feel? Is there, as a test pilot, does... Would you well, like as, to as a test pilot, thank you, yes. As a test pilot, the gentleman's confused. Fly-by-wire is not necessarily about the aircraft refusing to exceed limits. Fly-by-wire is about you telling the aeroplane what manoeuvre you want it to do and it using whatever equipment it has got to try and do that manoeuvre. It is a totally separate issue if you cap the fly-by-wire manoeuvres and say, no more than so much alpha, no more than so much G. It doesn't have to be like that just because it's fly-by-wire. It doesn't have to be at all. Many people will say it is sensible to make it like that, but I, I, I personally don't hold that view. Uh, the Russians use soft limits uh, with, with their aeroplane. They have a 9G limit, and if you want to pull more G, then I think it was 30 kilos you had to pull, quite a, quite a force, two-handed pull. And, and you went through a spring-loaded stop on the stick. Um, so, yeah, I mean, fly-by-wire does not have to mean automatic envelope protection. It does not have to mean that. It does mean that in some aeroplanes, I agree. But it doesn't have to. Gordon Bruce, if I might contribute a, a minor correction on the crash of the SC-1, that in fact was at Belfast. I saw the wreck uh, with an hour of the impact, and as you say, it killed John Richard Green. But certainly, certainly at Belfast, Sydenham, not at Bel not at Bedford, as labelled. Well, I am really surprised because I had the same experience at Bedford. Um, okay, uh, whatever. Jacob Whitfield, formerly of Imperial. Um, I just had some... A lot of the aircraft you've shown us, and even the successful ones you said, have been compromised in some way, be that in range payload, be that in max speed, be that in reliability mm -hmm. and ease of flying, to be super sort of ninja to, to actually get them off the ground. The... JSF is supposedly um, much easier to fly, has supersonic capability, decent range payload. Why do you think that is? Has there been some magic secret that's sort of been cracked, or is it simply fly-by-wire and, and sort of digital control and all this gives you much more margin to play with? Well, the good, it's a good question. The, the reason the Joint Strike Fighter aeroplane has the greater potential that you talked about is because the engine is bigger and better and lighter. 
I mean, the whole thing, the whole performance of a fighter, that's, that's not true. The majority of the performance of a fighter is driven by the engine. Yes, the aerodynamics come into it in terms of G, especially at low speed and so on. But um, if you're talking of high speed, if you're talking of range, if you're talking of vertical takeoff, this is all about the motor. And motors are better. And that Lockheed aeroplane, using the same basic engine as the Boeing aeroplane used, albeit they both modified it slightly differently, the Lockheed people put a fan on the front and an extra turbine state, you know, blah, blah, blah. That hovered with the same engine, 10,000 pounds more weight than the Boeing aeroplane, with the same engine. Because a fan is inherently more efficient as a thrust generator than a pure jet at low speed. So that's the technology. It's extremely complex technology. You've got a, you've got a sort of variable mode engine. Um, they, uh, I was part of the red team and went over there and, and looked at their program for flight testing the aeroplane before it flew. And I was very privileged to be asked to help in this regard. And we were only told what we needed to know. And they would not tell us how they were reorganizing the internal flows in that engine. They, they, talked, uh, they talked about uh, diverting thrust. They talked about thrust blockers. Um, and one day at the Holiday Inn, having breakfast, there didn't seem to be anybody else around except the Pratt and Whitney guy. And I said, if, if somebody threw a thrust blocker on your, um, on your breakfast table, would you recognize it? He said, yeah. <laughs> and I said, what did it look like then? And he said, well, it's a lot of fingers. So what we're talking about is changing the size of ducts in the middle of the engine, in the same way we are used to changing the size of ducts in a tailpipe associated with reheat and so on. At the pressures and temperatures that are going on inside those engines, they are changing the physical shape of it. Now, you don't do that without clever materials. You don't do that without clever design. You don't do that without clever testing, and it all seems to work. We have just made tremendous advances. When I first flew that P1127, I, I went, I drove to work in, in a thing called a Ford Anglia 100E. It was a, yeah, a few Snickers, yeah. You know, it was 24 horsepower or something. It was cast iron engine. It had four cylinders. It, it needed servicing, considerable servicing, every thousand miles. It never started on a damp day. If you put your foot down, uh, the windscreen wiper stopped. Um, <laughs> It had three forward gears, only two of which had sink uh, mesh. When I went to do the last flight, my personal last flight in that uh, Vark aeroplane with, with Justin at Boscombe down in 99, I went in a Fiat. Um, it was a coupe turbo. It had 220 horsepower. It had six forward gears. It had sink mesh on reverse. I opened the bonnet. I couldn't even recognize the components that are under there. It needed servicing every 12,000 miles, and that was just an oil and filter change, so it wasn't the greasing point on the motor. It always started first, first turn of the key. Um, it would do 100 miles an hour in third. I used to run it round uh, Goodwood on, on track days and so on. That's what happened to motor cars in that period of time when I was working as a test pilot. The same thing has happened to aircraft engines and aircraft structures and, and so on. And they are really quite unbelievable 
if people are stuck in the 1960s, they really are, what they can achieve today. New materials, better blokes, and better lubricants too. Could I now ask uh, David Rowland, please, to say a few words? John, it's my privilege to, to give the vote of thanks on behalf of all of us here this evening. Um, you started off by saying that uh, you didn't really feel comfortable doing these talks because these were talks about failure and you prefer to deal with success. I prefer to think that, personally, that what you've done is by going around those aircraft and the fact that only a few of them have actually seen service, I don't think for the purposes of the message you've been giving this evening is that important because the, the list is inspiring that at least people tried and at least people were trying to do those things. And you played, as we all know, uh, a significant and, uh, and a huge part in that process over the last 30 or 40 years. It's quite common, I think, for people to give votes of thanks to actually make some notes about what's been said. And some people who are far braver than me will try and summarize. Um, you wouldn't thank me for it. I can't do it, and I can't compete with your wheel, so I won't even do it. But I will say that it's seeing people like you flying when I was a teenager that inspired me to want to be a pilot and to go on to be one for, the, for my career. Uh, and I can remember to this day the first time in real life I saw an aircraft take off vertically and then disappear into the distance. And I just thought it was all done by magic. Well, I've always thought that anyway about aviation, but, uh, and I was convinced about it then. And that, that sort of thing, and even those failures on your wheel, I think inspired a whole generation to want to do, to build, to fly, and whatever. And I think you've illustrated that so well in your talk. If I'm allowed a per personal um, anecdote, I, I, one of the nicest examples of vertical flight in terms of the, 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 the jet engine as opposed to the helicopter was, was in 1976. I had the pleasure to be in, in New York on Bicentennial Day in America, and New York Harbor was full of, of visiting um, aircraft, military personnel and whatever, uh, and, and a huge presence, as you'd expect, by the American fleet. And the, the act that stole the day was when um, four Harriers took off from a British carrier, went up to the Statue of Liberty in a little ark, nodded to it, and then reversed away back to their ship. Mm -hmm. And standing as I was with thousands at the bottom of Manhattan Island, um, what a show, how very understated, uh, and how proud it made us all feel that people like you had worked in this industry and helped us to get to that stage. Um, you speak with such authority and good humor. It's a pleasure to listen to you. Thank you very much indeed. John, I'd certainly like to echo David's comments. And on behalf of the historical group, I have a small present here for you, this memento. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you.